Hello everybody and welcome to episode 19 of Here We Go Again, Israeli Politics. This week's episode is dedicated to our dear friend Ari Fold. This past week is the third yard site of, Ari, of the vicious terrorist attack that took Ari from us. He was a true hero and we miss him greatly. All six terrorists captured and returned to jail. Bennett met with the President Assisi. Lapid announces plan for Gaza. And God says Israel could live with a new Iran deal. This is Here We Go Again. So, as many of you have probably been following, the terrorists who escaped from the prison up north last week all have been caught. They were caught in three separate segments. The first two terrorists were caught um, in Natsrat, um, which is a city not that far around, 15 kilometers from the uh, prison. Um, they were caught with the assistance of the Arab-Israeli citizens of that city. Um, they were caught last Saturday night. Um, so were uh, they were caught last Saturday, and last Saturday another set of two were caught in that city as well. And last night, Saturday night, um, were also caught uh, the last two uh, of the terrorists um, um, that escaped from the prison. So it's it's interesting to see here what we can learn from this. Before we get into the political side of who failed here and who succeeded, we'll discuss that in a moment. Just from a tactical perspective, they're now investigating the prisoners that escaped, and they're getting to some interesting understandings. On the one hand, there's an understanding that no one on the outside helped them or even knew this was happening. Okay, so this wasn't a Hamas deal, this wasn't pushed on by people getting... They, there was no information. Especially since if this really was a largely planned Hamas deal, or even the Jihad or, 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 or the Palestinian Authority, they would have helped them escape. All they needed to get to their to their area and they would have been fine. They couldn't get to nothing and from, from even from the investigations you see that they didn't even have water. They were like for about a day and a half they had no water. That's why they collapsed towards the end of the chase and they were just caught, you know, and out of six out of six, it's just unbelievable, were caught with no violence. The last ones last night in Janine where they went into into Janine, there was a slight issues there and thing, but it wasn't even like, you know, for what they're, they're uh, regular to, you know, this is an Arab city that when they enter there usually has extensive rock throwing and attacks on, on, on the army personnel. There were slight ones, but nothing that actually endangered them. And, and in the end, they were caught and arrested um, with no harm to them, which ended up being good for us from, uh, from many perspectives. So credit goes to the army and political commanders involved in catching them um, and, and truly bringing them to uh, courts. So, but what's important to say here is on the one hand, so they got no help on the outside. They had no plan, no vehicle waiting for them. They, were, they went everywhere on foot, literally had no plan. But on the other hand, we're understanding that within the jail, this was really not such a kept secret. Okay, within the jail, many other prisoners had knew that this tunnel was being built. They knew the tunnel existed. They knew they were leaving that night. So that to us is really, really a, 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 a structural issue and, and, and an inherent issue that we had that, that the intelligence arm of the Shabbas, the, um, the prisoner uh, system, the authority that's in charge of the prison, you know, it really failed miserably, but especially now we're seeing worse and worse how much they failed by not being able to stop this from happening in the first place. I completely agree, and I, I truly believe that it shouldn't be something that is just looked over. There has to be an investigation here, and people have to be held accountable, be it political or uh, officials in the prisons. Someone was in charge of this scenario, 
and someone has to be held accountable for the fact that they get out. Yes, in the end of the day, these prisoners were caught without violence, no one was hurt, there was no, ter there was no big terrorist attack that happened because of this. However, as a result of this, a large portion of the prison was still burned, um, and, and, and the prisoners in general, them breaking out, could have left to disaster. And someone has to be held accountable. And just because they were caught doesn't mean people should get off the hook. Uh, well, this leads us into our next segment. Um, the tensions in the area have been rising dramatically over the past week and a half, um, especially in uh, the Judean Samaria portion and on the Gaza border. Uh, there have been multiple rockets fired from Judean, from uh, Gaza. There have been uh, soldiers who are not allowed to go home from Judea and Samaria uh, for fear of uh, attacks and them being needed. Um, while all this was happening, the political bodies in power in Israel have been moving towards what appears to be something quasi of a police plan. We will go through some of their actions over the past few weeks and clarify why we believe that they're moving towards what appears to be a peace plan or some kind of regional deal and why this may or may not be dangerous uh, spe um, specifically pertaining to the fact that this is a center-left government. So the first thing that happened uh, that we would like to discuss is the fact that uh, Prime Minister Bennett met with President Assisi. Uh, president Assisi is the president of Egypt. Um, this is the first time in 10 years that a Prime Minister of Israel has officially met with uh, the president of Egypt. Now, this isn't an issue. Um, the president of Egypt is, in theory, someone we have a peace treaty with. Uh, we speak to them often when it pertains to Gaza. However, um, and Netanyahu stated that he met with him around seven times, just not publicly. However, when this comes in with all of the other issues on the table, including, as we'll discuss a little bit later, um, Yair Lapid, the foreign minister's plan for Gaza, uh, and the defense secretary meeting with Abu Mazen two weeks ago, as we discussed, this again seems to be pushing to the fact that we are getting support from some of the neighboring countries for some sort of deal which is going to end badly for, again, once again, as always, for the people of Israel. And this comes on the back of, this week was the 28th anniversary of the disastrous Oslo Accords, which were signed supposedly as the great harbingers of peace that were bred to uh, sign in a new era, which just led to a new uh, two intifadas um, with big issues for the country moving forward whenever it pertains to dealing with the Palestinian problem. I think that... It's, you know, him meeting with Assisi, the, uh, is he the president of... He's the president, the president of Egypt. Of Egypt the, the president of Egypt. You know, again, this, this means something, and it's showing that the other countries have interest in meeting with Bennett, because in the end of the day, even if when, within the internal sphere, Bennett is a right-wing politician, really, he's a new face, and everyone is, wants to be friendly with a new face and have also an option to become genuinely open with them. And it seems to be that if you look at the, again, obviously you don't know what happened with the, between closed doors, but in general, it was a good meeting. It was a good trip and it was a good meeting. Um, and, and I will, slight correction to my opinion is I think that I, I don't believe Egypt is a quasi peace. You know, I don't believe that he's saying, no, Egypt is in peace with us. They're in peace with us. We have had no issues on the border of Egypt. We have been wanting to work together to enhance each other's abilities to work on the border. I will agree that 
in the end, look, they're an Arab country. I'm not saying that they're friendly and they're like, you know, oh, they just want the best for Israel. So I wasn't stating that. They're not an ally. They're someone we have peace with. They're just not an ally. The UAE, in theory, is an ally or, or other countries we recently signed with. So I might disagree with that also. I think the UAE, in a lot of ways, is not an ally and is constantly supporting the Palestinian Authority and building in, the, in, in Palestinian, uh, you know, buildings in, in, in Jewish lands. I think that the Egypt, from their perspective... Again, whether or not, and this to me is the interesting part about peace. I don't believe in peace for naiveness, for, for, for love. You know, I don't want to be in peace with someone because he wants Israel to succeed. No, 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 no. I want to be in peace with you because it's correct and good for the both of us. And I think that's exactly what Egypt has. And that's why I think the peace of Egypt is actually pretty strong. Because economically they want it, for the safety of their people in, 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 in Sinai they want it, because of all the ISIS issues that they have there and we're helping them there as well. So we actually work together because it's in a mutual interest of ours, and that's why I think it's a pretty strong piece at the current position. Uh, it is a strong piece. It also um, is very similar to our piece with Jordan, um, that they both need Israel for certain things. Jordan, for let's say, is dependent almost completely on Israel for its water, um, and Egypt uses Israel for other things, which has a good piece. But that's not my point. My main point, which I'm coming to here, which leads into our next part, is that meeting with him publicly at this point, again, seems to lead to the fact that we're ratcheting up for some sort of deal. Now, part of a version of said deal was presented by the foreign minister and replacement prime minister, Yair Lapid, Sunday night. Um, this is according to Channel 12 News. He held a press conference. Um, he wanted to change drastically the policy of Israel um, against Gaza and the Hamas. Um, he categorized this as a, a multi-year plan involving economics for uh, security. Um, what he states is that they will bring, build back the infrastructure of the uh, Gaza Strip for um, a long-term peace from uh, Gaza. Now, um, we'll go into a little bit in detail to what actually happened uh, in his meeting and what he stated his detailed plan was. But just to be clear, this happened on the back of multiple rockets being fired. And right after he finished his speech, there were multiple rockets fired on Israel and there were many, many terrorist attempt, att attacks attempted this week, I believe to attempt to clarify uh, that the Hamas is not interested uh, with this deal. Now, what were the details of his plan? The main details of his plan held at the uh, Reichman University was that they do not intend to hold any sort of uh, quid pro quo with the Hamas. They will only deal with the Palestinian Authority. As we mentioned, this uh, works with what we discussed last week with the fact that Gantz met with Abu Mazen, who is the head of the PA. They appear to attempt to be strengthening the PA to try and replace uh, Gaza. Um, he Hamas. wants to replace Hamas in Gaza. Um, he wants to push forward uh, economics for security. Um, he wants to attempt to push Hamas to explain to the people of the Gaza Strip why they live in poverty and desperation um, instead of uh, in a prosperous life of a first world nation. Um, and part of his deal would involve the UN and the United States paying and Egypt paying for uh, build, rebuilding the Gaza Strip as long as there's peace and quiet and building them an island off the coast of the Gaza Strip for open trade with the world. Um, and building a tunnel roads to connect between the uh, Judean Samaria portions of the, um, belonging to the Arabs 
um, area A and B, as discussed in the episode, The Heartland, where he detailed what the situation in Judea and Samaria is and between the Gaza border. Now, before we get to the practicality of this plan, connecting, there's many issues with this plan. Number one, I do not believe any politician in Israel when they say, we're going to stop something the second there's noise. Lapid is still moving forward with this plan, even though while he was giving his speech, there were rockets being fired on Sderot. This government loved to state that the Sderot and Ashkelon are the same thing as Tel Aviv. But if while he was giving this speech, there were rockets fired on Tel Aviv or on where he was in, in the Reichman University, I sincerely doubt he would have continued to speak and would have continued to say it because they just simply don't care. Another aspect is that if they were to connect and build them a territorial landmass between the Gaza Strip and their portions of Judea and Samaria, they were tempted to create on the ground a Palestinian state. As with the Oslo Accords, when you give stuff, you can't get them back. It's not like you can slowly move forward the peace plan and, oh, if this doesn't work, then we'll just go back to where it was. If you give them things, they love to take them. But as long as they, if it's just for quiet, then I don't see any reality where this doesn't end us end up hurting us in the end. So I think it splits. What I agree with you that you should not give them something they do not have right now, um, especially not for uh, a very, very clear agreement of either long-term stuff. What I will say is that when it comes to the helping the economy of them, look, in the end, there's, there's, it, you know, you could come up and say, you shouldn't give them anything, they don't deserve anything, and, and that's okay, that might be, you could say that's correct from a Jewish perspective, but it's not realistic on the ground. And, and when you look at the situation now, and if you look at the people in Judea Samaria, the reason that we don't have an intifada all the time, and the reason that we do not have terrorists or attacks all the time, is because they're living a pretty good life. Now again, are they living the best life? No. I will not come and say that for a moment. Now, it would be dishonest to say that the Palestinian walk, uh, driving, you know, living in Judea and Samaria is living a wonderful life. He's not. But he's living in a place where he has a job and he goes to work every day. Most of them go work in Jewish uh, territories and they cross over and they get paid much higher salaries than what they need to spend in in the um, in Judea and Samaria where they live and and that's why so the idea that economic um, um, not a boost it's a call it's like uh, incentives okay to help them economically and that will bring quiet has been proven successful whether or not short-term or long-term that's already a question that will be debated by historians that's not what I'm arguing. I'm very happy to give them economics for peace. On the contrary, I think it's worked wonders in many places, not just in Israel, but in the world. My main issue is the territorial um, connection that we're attempting to create there. If we're going to build these underground roads, which we don't know what's going there, if we're opening up um, free trade for them with their own port, which isn't going to necessarily be supervised by Israel, it's going to maybe be supervised by UN supervisors, which we all know how good UN supervisors, um, how good of a job they do. Um, and that, I think, is going to be the issue because you're going to attempt to create facts on the ground of such issues, which is going to be the main issue. It's like when we created the Oslo Accord, area A, B, and C. Even though on the time people thought they might lead to peace. I, I was not alive, but I doubt that I would have thought that it would have led to peace. But the issue was that it can't go back on it now. Area A, B, and C existed. The Palestinian Authority exists. These are facts. They're not something that we can just destroy now.
And I just want to remind everyone that this is happening whilst the MENA, which is the in theory ruling party in the country, has stated on many occasions there's not going to be any uh, policy changes or we're not moving towards a police plan or regional plan. When the head of their party goes to meet with Assisi and, and that um, Yair Lapid, which is their partner essentially in this government, goes to say this, it's very hard to believe them on these counts. Which leads to another big security issue that we have, which is of course going to be Iran. And uh, this is according to FP News. Um, there, with an interview with Benny Gantz, he stated that Israel can live with a new Iran nuclear deal, but they also thre threatened military action if Tehran were to develop nukes. Now, all of that is good and nice, but the fact that you're stating and even accepting in theory the concept of the nuclear deal, which we all know how disaster it was in the first place, and how good it was that President Trump had decided to pull out of the nuclear de deal and almost brought the Ayatollahs and, and Iran itself to the brink of economic collapse. The fact that Israel is uh, considering accepting a new nuclear deal is a very big issue. Because if America wanted to sign it, that might be a solution. Israel, as we mentioned in our episode that Israel is not the 51st state, Israel would need to maintain its independence and its independence to act in this scenario specifically, because Israel must first and foremost focus on its own defense. Its defense is not something that's negotiable, especially since there have been multiple reports over the past few weeks from intelligence sources in Israel and abroad saying that the, uh, that the Iranian uh, government is getting closer and closer to a nuclear power, closer than they ever have been before. And this is a big issue. And considering saying the words that we're considering going back to a nuclear deal, especially before one has been formally brought to the table, I think is a bad move that can lead to bad con consequences, especially dealing with a American government, which has been very, very pro a new nuclear deal um, brought to the table. So I think it's way more complicated than you're making it. Okay, in the end, a nuclear country is an all or nothing game. You either have access to a nuclear bomb or you do not have access, okay? Similar to that is the question in the statement of a economic collapse of a dictatorship, okay? There's no such, it's an all or nothing game. Even if they're almost at an economic collapse but they are still in power and they still have their money, they're not an economic collapse. It just means their people are suffering, okay? Now, why does it make a difference? Because in the end, it's very crucial to understanding when you look at Trump and you look at his move in leaving the, the Iranian deal, okay? If it was successful, and if he would have made them collapse, and he would have had maybe four more years in power, then it might have been successful. And I'm not saying his decision was wrong originally, but facts on the ground are that four years after Trump, they are way, way closer to a nuclear deal than they were before that. Now again, does that mean that in Obama's deal, which was horrific for many reasons, that in 10 years they would just be able to do it without being stopped? I'm not denying any of the issues in the deal. But... The facts on the ground are that when you left the deal meant basically saying we're just going to make you a lot of sanctions and make it much harder for you to build, but at the same time they had no sanctions from the other countries because they were able to continue. They are closer to a bomb today than they ever were because we left the deal. They are closer to a bomb today, but I, I, just to be clear, Trump has been out of, out of office for almost nine months at this point. No, nine, four, nine, four months at this no, point. I'm sorry. And I, again, I will publicly say I was a big supporter of him leaving the, the Iran deal. It was a horrific deal. 
But the facts that have gone down that throughout his presidency, they were progressing very fast. Now again, what was the idea behind it? That if he had a little more time and they would have actually collapsed and realized they have no money and the people were starving on the streets more than they already were, then it could have been a big success because then everyone else would come and then you managed to beat them out economically without needing to have warfare. With an Obama's deal, or now Biden going to deal, you're just basically pushing off the issue by an X amount of years to then need to do military force then because then they'll just be allowed to build their, their thing without any sanctions. Not even pushing it off because as we know with multiple reports from many news outlets and the Pentagon that they built nuclear powers anyway, that they were expanding their thing even Again, under the you're deal. you're touching on the issues of the deal. It was horrific and it was terrible and need to be redone. It's just not fair to state that leaving the deal and not dealing with it for that many years, except for the sanctions, was successful. It might have been the right move, but it was not successful. Again, but that's irrelevant to the defense secretary's statement here. The defense secretary should not be pushing, saying Israel was okay with a new deal before such a deal was even presented. Israel being okay with a deal does not mean that we're not going to defend ourselves. We're saying, you guys want to make another deal to figure it out? Go for another deal. Let's be very clear. We are keeping sovereignty of ours, and if we don't believe in the deal, if we think it's dangerous, we will attack when needed. It's two very different things. I'm not saying it's what he thinks. I, I, it's very possible he thinks what you're saying, and he wants to go right back to the Obama deal, which would be horrible. But I'm saying it's possible. But I, I, I do not like, with all of the moves of this government, seem to be moving very starkly to the left, and I think that's a very big issue, especially... Um, Aside from politically for the right-wing parties of this government, it's an issue on the security um, matters of this country because in Israel, every act you make sets a precedent. Every inch you give, someone will take a mile. And that mile is never coming back. It's something that must be, every, every centimeter must be defended at all costs. Which led to something I saw this week online. I just wanted to mention, this was a Facebook post uh, posted by the IDF online. Um, yes, the IDF has a Facebook page, which is surprisingly active for some reason. This was while um, the Gaza, there were rockets being fired from the Gaza Strip, um, and they decided to post a piece of code online that they created. The code is as follows. It said, if Hamas is attacking, um, and inside that they said, if Hamas is sending rockets and Molotov cocktails and um, uh, fire balloons, then Israel defends itself. Now, this created a very big uproar online from uh, people who are soldiers, from Israeli citizens, even from people who are not Israeli citizens who saw this. Because even if this was a mistake or it wasn't, let's just explain the major issue with what this was. What they stated here was, for Israel to think of defending itself, we needed Hamas to send both rockets and fire balloons and send Molotov cocktails and throw rocks. And the fact that they, even if this was just a mistake, the fact that they allowed someone to go and post this online as an actual concept of saying Israel can only defend itself under certain circumstances, that's an issue. And it also wasn't even Israel attacks in the Gaza Strip, it was Israel defends itself. We'll put up the, um, the Iron Dome, we'll stop, we'll pop these balloons in the air. No, someone attacks you, you retaliate with force. You do not simply allow your, your country, your sovereignty, to be breached every other day and not respond. And even though this isn't the political bodies acting here, this is the IDF that posted this, it's a very big issue because it shows where our military commanders are at and where the mindset of the military is. And just to showcase the left-leaning aspects of this government, which appear to be growing stronger and bolder, 
against what the precepts of this government was when they were created, um, there was an interview this week with Chavar Knesset Yaz Hendel. Yaz Hendel is uh, from the party of A New Hope, um, and he is um, currently uh, serving as the um, Secretary for Communications, um, Minister for Communications, sorry. And um, he had an interview this week, and he stated as follows, that someone asked him, would you sit with Ben Gvir? Um, and just a reminder, uh, Ben Gvir is um, a member of the Religious Right Party. He is a very extreme uh, member. He tends to be very vocally racist and cause issues. We discussed him a few weeks ago when discussing um, him being removed from the podium while speaking for not calling um, uh, Ahmed Tibi um, sir. Um, and all of this led to the fact that he was asked in an interview. And he said, would you sit with him in a coalition? He said, no. Would you sit with Walid Taha? Uh, Walid Taha is an Arab uh, um, member of Knesset. And he said, I would sit with um, the Ra'am party because she announced that because that she would like to sit in a coalition and seize uh, the Israeli state as a Jewish and democratic state. Now, regardless of what you think of Ben this statement was incredibly problematic because the entire premise of this government leaning on Ra'am, um, which is a reminder that Ra'am is the Arab party um, in this government, was out of a, born out of necessity. It was not an ideal. It was something that they needed to form this government and would only happen with very extenuating circumstances that would bar them from going too far to the left and um, heeding to the wishes of this Arab party. And again, whatever you believe of his opinions, the fact that you would willingly support sitting with people who have supported terrorism in the past, people who don't always deny terrorism today, some of them who supported the people um, publicly, the people who broke out of the jails, more than the people, than a person who truly wants for the good of the country, who, uh, who albeit may say racist comments sometimes, but doesn't break the law, doesn't support killing people, doesn't support any of the terrorist actions, and has always been a big supporter of the state of Israel, is incredibly problematic. And so it's a very bad precedent from the right wing of this government, that the right wing of this government is the one that says this. And I think that is a very big problem for them. And he did come out and give a clarification after the uproar that happened online, and he stated that political interviews are always complicated, and they sometimes create headlines without any depth. Um, but he said, well, practically, we're sitting currently with Ram in the coalition and not sitting with Ben Gvir. This is out of a political uh, re- reality and not out of something that we chose. But um, he would like to create a Zionistic coalition that uh, brings all the different um, parts together. He says, even um, when the Kuds wanted to do this government, they did it um, with, uh, with Ben Gvir sitting out. Now this reminds me much of the when Rabin wanted to use the Arab parties from the out and he was always saying against the Kahanis team. Yes, extremists are bad on both sides, but there's no symmetry between the two. There's no symmetry between someone who, albeit maybe an avid racist, even publicly, which he isn't that much, he's been quoted incorrectly and pushed to the extreme sometimes, in quotes, between then someone who supports terrorism. And I think anyone making that equation or trying to create symmetry when there isn't one is just lying and being a hypocrite. So I think it's basic politics what happened here. 
I think that he, he was stupid in the interview. I think he should have been bashed for it in the interview. And I think that his statement was also fair because if you watched a full interview, it's not exactly what he said. And it's not exactly what he means to. It's politics. You know, in the end, I think that they were trying to find headlines in something that wasn't really there. But at the same time, yeah, he should have been smart enough to make things clearer when he was in that interview. And he did not do that well as, as well. I agree. And one more uh, important interview that happened this week. Prime Minister Bennett had his second interview since becoming Prime Minister this week. Um, and this interview had a lot of things that truly angered people. We want to go through just some of the points made during this interview. Um, now, before we get into that, it is important to, to pay attention here that many on the right were truly mad at this interview because it's a 180 degrees from anything that would be uh, done with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. Um, the uh, media never loved Netanyahu. They loved to bash on him. Um, they would never be polite to him in interviews. He would never be called Mr. Prime Minister. They would truly be rude to him on many occasions. And it was kind of problematic um, that they did this. Um, but here you saw once again the return of cordiality and um, how everyone is so polite to him. And even the questions aren't that hard. Although there was some questions that were difficult for him. And we'll go through his answers. So the, one of the questions that Unique Levy asked was, Anything you said, we can find something in, in, that you said, which is exactly the opposite. And he said, when I came through the door of being prime minister, I, had to, I decided to um, take off all politics off my back. Now, before we get to anything else, this statement is terrible. Because politics is what you state publicly. It is what promises you make, and it's what your beliefs and ideology are. And yes... If you said something, but when you get to the office, you can say I changed my mind or the facts on the ground are different than what I thought, that's fine. But you're saying I am getting rid of all politics that I had? No. You had ideology that we voted for you. You had beliefs and a set of morals that grounded you. And, and part of your statements, if you made a statement publicly that you're not willing to defend, then I'm sorry that statement should never have been made. Then you cannot just say that because I was recorded once, because I made it to an office, Everything I said in the past doesn't matter. Everything you said politically and publicly matters. You can change your mind. That's fine and even a good thing sometimes. That is not the same thing as saying, when I became a prime minister, politics is no longer important. Politics is everything when it comes to these types of things because politics dictates policy because politics is our culture and it's real. So I agree with you and I think that you know, your your statement that you were saying, which is very important, is that you are have the, have the ability to change your mind, you have the ability to apologize, and you know what, at first he did that. When the whole idea of him going into the coalition in the first place with Lapid and with the Arab parties, which he stated he would not, he stood up in front of the camera and said, I, I, I that was my plan, I didn't want to, and I have to accept the fact that I said it, I'm doing it anyway, and I apologize for that. And I wasn't angry at him. I could be, you could be angry at him for making his decision. But I wasn't angry that he said one thing and did the other because he straight up said, I understood that I said that and for reasons of follows, I decided I needed to do differently. That is fair and he will have his consequences in the elections and that's fair. You succeed or don't succeed, that's called politics. I completely agree with you that's very, very different than coming and saying I'm ignoring what is in the past. You have to stand forward and say two of the things, either say it's different now or say I apologize, you're right, it's different than I said I would do and I'm doing it differently and I will have to take the consequences for that in the future. Now he's just trying to say, I don't want any consequences. Which is very bad as we mentioned with this maybe peace plan on the table and with a free, almost a full freeze on building in Judea and Samaria, which he fought against as the head of the Esha Council. And um, 
another thing he said in an interview that um, they're going to sit and debate the topic of uh, passing a law that they're not allowed to have um, a government being built by someone who is um, uh, uh, indicted for a crime. Um, he also stated that too much time on the chair of prime minister is bad. Um, and a lot of these things seem to lead to the fact that um, if his ideology isn't worth much, then who is he? I don't care what in the end of the day what he says more what he does. And if what he does isn't based on all of the actions he's taken in the past, if everything he's done in the past doesn't matter, then why would I have voted for you? Why would my, my vote be worth something? And someone asked me recently, do I regret voting for him? I don't, not yet. There were a lot of things that happened good out of this government, a lot of economic things and, and different precedents that were set also getting us out of the rut that we were stuck in. And also showing the fact that there's such a big issue with the Israeli government that a party with six seats could lead. But if he goes down this road and if he changes that so much, then maybe I'm, I may come to regret my decision of voting for him. And he may just betray all of his voters so much that he'll never be able to come back from it. And I think it's a very big issue which he's going to face. And I think he will have to truly face this. And if the time comes... Um, when he has to face the consequences, be it in the ballot box or when he eventually wants to sit with a new right-wing government again. So I feel like I'm going to say something really, not, not unpopular, but people, things that people may strongly disagree with you and I might end up disagreeing with myself, but some part of an honesty of a politician sometimes I think is very crucial and I think can make a big difference. Now, as a human being, personally, I trust Naftali Bennett. I'm not saying I trust him with his decisions. Absolutely not. I'm saying I trust him as a person. And to me, I want to say, like, you know what? If things are different there, you know, the classic sentence of, you know, things look different from there than they do from here. And when you become prime minister, you understand things that you don't know before. You know what? That's fine. But tell that to us. Stand up in front. You know what? I don't need to know. You could tell me this is things that are, again, I'm saying personally, some people will completely disagree and say there's no such thing. And if you have information that you can't tell us, then you like, then that's your problem or you need to share it with us. I'm okay with him standing up as prime minister and saying to my right wing voters, there are things that you do not understand. There are things that you see from here that I cannot share with you. And therefore I need to make different decisions. That does not mean I'll feel good about it, but I will feel like I can still believe in him. I could still believe you and say, you know what, maybe you do know things that I don't know, or maybe you don't, and I could disagree with you. In this situation, it's almost like I'm doing things I didn't tell you, but I'm not even going to tell you why. I'm not even going to act like something changed. I'm just going to be like, oh, now that I'm in power, I'm going to do differently than I said. That's very hard for me. And it's not simply that. And I think it's, it's not just that you're changing your opinion. It's that you're doing so without any remorse about it. Which led to, I saw a lot of uh, posts online this week from politicians. Um, this week was Yom Kippur. Uh, people tend to apologize before Yom Kippur. And there's this really disgusting thing that politicians in Israel do. Before Yom Kippur, they all decide that they need to apologize for other people. They never need to apologize, but they need to, they, they, they deem that their political rivals need to apologize. And they list all the sins of their political rivals, and they, uh, and they as if uh, apologize in their name. And I really don't like that. I would love a politician that would get up and say, these were your comments on me this year. And I'll, I may defend most of these, but there are things I screwed up on because everyone screws up. And if someone would actually get up and apologize, and I'd have more respect for a politician who did that. 
Because I think most Israelis voters were too. Well, that's one of Tali Bennett when he went in. That's why I'm saying okay with it. When he went up and said, I'm going with the Arab parties, he apologized to the people. And he says, I'm sorry that I said differently. It's what needs to happen now. And I was, and I felt like I, I accept that. Again, you don't have to agree. You can accept and disagree. That's okay. Right now, exactly as you're saying, there's as if there's nothing wrong. Which, which was one of also the main critiques on the Netanyahu government that he wouldn't accept responsibility for things on occasion, and that he, and that he, nothing was ever his fault or nothing was ever truly wrong. And the fact that they're falling to the same rut that for the government that they came to replace is just a bad move on their part. And we will see in the future if a true peace plan comes to unfold, and whether or not it will be as problematic as we seem to fear it will be. Um, I believe that if a peace plan were to unfold with this government, it would look a lot like the Natkut in 2005 or um, the Oslo Accords in 1996. Um, and we will see, but I do not have big hope for this in the future. And now we'll move forward to our segment, the Dumb Economic Decisions of the Week. So, um, our first uh, decision um, is not more really a decision, but a lack thereof. Um, for anyone living in Israel, uh, they are very well aware of this. There's currently a massive shortage of milk in Israel. Um, if you go to the store, there's no milk on the shelves or there's a very uh, small amount. There's not the variety that there usually is. Um, and here's the most important part. We knew this a year in advance because this happens every single year in the Chagim. Now, why does this happen, you must ask? Um, this happens because the Council of Milk, yes, this is a thing. There's a council that decides how much milk can be produced and where. Um, and they also are the council that denies any importing of milk. Um, did not allow more milk to be created for the Chagim. And therefore, there is not enough milk currently existing in the country for all the supply. Oh. Sorry, that's not why. They're cleaning because they don't have enough days. One of the main... Uh, comments that they have made as an excuse from the Council of Milk. There's not enough days in the month of September because of all the holidays to create this milk. Um, there also is usually a higher demand for milk during this month. Um, whether or not this is true, I think it's relevant. I think it's this council should be shut down. Uh, it was originally uh, a thought to shut it down during the Hokkaiz digging, which we discussed a few weeks ago when discussing the budget. Um, it will not be put in. They hope to put it in next Hokkaiz digging. Um, this time they're attempting to shut down the council um, for chickens and for the eggs. Um, it's called the Moetzet Halul. Um, and hopefully they will move forward with that. So I think that it just shows how important and crucial this whole event was. Okay, just to go a little bit in the last couple of weeks here, remember, as Binyam was mentioning, we tried to pass a law in which we are get rid of this Moetzet Chaklaut and, you know, and, and allow importing of goods and allow them to bring in importing. And then all of the Chaklaim, um, um, the farmers, the farmers came in and attacking and, and basically rioted, throwing eggs on the streets. And what was their claim? That you can't do that because without us, you, can't, you know, they're saying, what's their claim against? Everyone agrees, theoretically, that if you bring in imp larger import, you'll get cheaper prices and more competition. But what's their claim? If you bring that, then they'll make not, they won't make enough money, and therefore they'll shut down, and then they're claiming, then what your issue is going to be? That without us, what are you going to do when there's a crisis? And when there's a crisis, how are you going to make sure that there's eggs and chicken and milk for everyone if we're not making it because you're not going to be able to import? And the answer to that was just, that, that's absolutely ridiculous, because one of the safest possible ways to make sure 
you have goods is more import. Because never in history has there been a boycott by every single country to be able to import something. Even at war, you could import goods from certain areas to be able to bring them in. And guess what the biggest proof is? That in the freaking holidays, they can't make enough milk. You're just proving that you're not capable of doing it alone. If we imported eggs or milk, we wouldn't have a problem of when there's the Sabbath or when there's a holiday because import is not affected by the day of the week. But guess what is affected by the day of the week? Making things inside the damn country. It doesn't make sense and it shouldn't happen. And it happens every single year. And even if we were to claim that this is such an issue that they need to somehow deal with, figure it out. It happens every year with the eggs, the milk, and chicken. And every year on the, on the month that the Arabs don't work because they fast, there's a shortage of chicken. Figure it out in advance. You have a year every single time. But we will never make any progress with it because you're not allowed to. Because these people are above being touched. As you can see, we're really not opinionated at all about this topic and this does not bother us at all. Exactly. And another dumb economic decision. Um, well, actually, no, this one isn't that dumb. Um, it was just a dumb video to put out. So, um, the government put out a video uh, of uh, Prime Minister Bennett exclaiming how amazing it is that uh, the monthly uh, deficit has went down from 9.25% to 8%. So, just to clarify on the numbers here, um, Israel spent last year more money than Israel's ever spent. Because they decide, because of COVID, they decided they need to spend all of the money, um, which led to just pure mathematics. And this was stated in Bennett's video. This is not my numbers. That the amount of the deficit that Israel took on last year alone is a hundred thousand shekel, give or take, for every single family in Israel. That's the amount of debt that Israel took on. And the fact that we're exclaiming, "Oh, we lowered the def the monthly deficit by one point two five percent." First of all, that's great. How about we stop spending money we don't have? Let's first deal with the massive debt we incurred and then start spending on other things. So I think it's an oversimplification. You are correct and obviously you need to try to achieve to have the lower and lower uh, uh, debt. But no country doesn't have debt and, and you can in no world can you just say tomorrow there's no debt. Okay, there's certain spending that has to happen and it's a little unrealistic to say that. With that, I would come and say, I believe the statement should be yes. It is great and you should be proud that you're able to lower the deficit. And your next sentence should be, and in the next year we'd like to even double that to be better on in the future. That's a fair statement. Yeah, and it was just on the monthly deficit. It even wasn't such a big event. Now, our last economic decision is only slightly relevant to economics and kind of belongs more in the political segment. Um, this is a Twitter uh, battle that happened between two members of the coalition. Um, Meran Mikhaili, who is the head of the Labour Party, a uh, left-wing socialist party, um, he st um, commented on a Twitter post that in the budget committee, uh, not budget, in the money committee, um, they uh, did not approve uh, the Seif uh, 46, um, which is um, a exemption from taxes for a, uh, a non-profit, for the Amutat Adkan, which is a right-wing um, uh, uh, party, um, until uh, the IRS, the Israeli IRS, uh, the tax authority, um, looks into it. Now, um, Ayelet Shaked, who is the Minister for the Interior, co um, commented on Meral Mikheli's post about this, saying that they just started with this. She said, and you're done. Um, 
after a check with the budget uh, with the tax authority this will go back to the Knesset um, and then it will be approved um, according to the law now this is a just another portion of fractures that are slowly being created in this government especially with the fact when you have extreme right-wing capitalists and extreme socialists quasi marxists on the other side in the same government so it's correct, but also the reason this is important is really this was a clash between two powerful ministers in the government. And it was a very clear and public clash, and I think it's going to be the first of many. Uh, I completely agree, and it will be interesting to see what actually happens with this, and we'll discuss it after the tax authority gets to it. And with that, we'll move on to our final segment, Fun Israeli Facts of the Week. So, uh, this fact is in honor of the Shemitah year, uh, the seventh year where we do not work the land in Israel. Um, Israel it consumes more fruits and vegetables relative to population than any other nation in the world. Which is, uh, I guess, a, a healthy thing and also explains why all fruits and vegetables are incredibly expensive in Israel. Definitely, both of those things are probably true. And with that, we will conclude this episode. We hope you enjoyed. We thank you for listening in. We remind you, you could send us your comments and questions to our email at hwga.pod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Have some very interesting interviews coming up. This is Here We Go Again. <laughs>